Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. All right. We have a group of young adults that come during the week here to the church building from, uh, uh, from an organization called Pathways, and it's a pro post high school group. Uh, it, it's, it's kids that need a little extra time and attention and, and helping them uh, develop some job skills to go off and then uh, do more in life. And they're, they're just wonderful to work with. So we get to work with them two days a week. They actually come in and set up all the tables for Wednesday night cafe. And then the next day they take them all down. They do a lot of work. It makes a big difference. Uh, we've got two students coming this, this year uh, from Pathways. And one of them is named Caleb. And Caleb comes in and nearly the entire time that he's here, he's singing VeggieTale songs. And I'm like, this is, this is great. I mean, he's just, he loves VeggieTales. Well, fun fact, uh, my daughter goes to college where the guy that voiced Larry the Cucumber is a professor. She got to take a class from him, and at her recent play, I sat right behind Larry the Cucumber in the show. (laughs) He's really tall, by the way. At intermission, he stood up, and he's like, I'm so sorry if I'm in the way, and I'm like, yeah, it's kind of annoying. Can you move somewhere else? No, I didn't do that. (laughs) I was just so excited. I was kind of watching him the whole time. It was really exciting. So I got to meet Larry the Cucumber. That's super cool, right? Yay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Anyway, uh, so Caleb is singing VeggieTales songs, and I'm I'm thinking Caleb is going to love this fun fact that I have met Mr. Larry the Cucumber. And so I tell him, I'm like, hey, Caleb, can I tell you an interesting story? And Caleb looks at me and he goes, no, thank you. (laughs) And I thought, that is genius. I didn't realize that was an option. I'm planning on using that. Hey, Patrick, uh, you want to hear the latest political drama? No, thank you. (laughs) Patrick, do you want to hear about the dream I had last night? No, thank you. Patrick, I got this great investment. No, thank you. I just loved it. It was such a great way to just be like, no, I'm not interested. Now, I don't know if you know me well enough. I told him the story anyway. (laughs) But I thought it was just so cool. Just no, thank you. We have arrived at a section of scripture that a lot of people would say no, thank you to. You'll get to this part of uh, of your reading, and it's going to get a little dicey for some folks. Now, we're in this series called Torah Together. The word Torah is a Hebrew word that means, it roughly means law, but that's a little too clinical. It's a little bit more like guidance or instruction. It's like coming alongside somebody and and helping them out. That's what the word Torah means, but but literally, it's, it's laws. And so we're in this part of the Bible where there are laws, where you're reading laws in the Old Testament. When people think of the stereotypical parts of the Old Testament, this is the stuff that they think about. So this section that you're in is going to be a little bit more demanding. Now, if you're a first-time visitor, we are in the process of reading through the first five books of the Bible together. Genesis was a bunch of cool stories. Beginning of Exodus was a bunch of cool stories. Now we've gotten to a part. There's going to be some stories mixed in here, but there are a lot of laws, and this is the stuff that scares people off. This is like, you know, how at the, at the beginning of the year, first of the year, the gym is packed with people who are living out their New Year's resolution, and by the time you get to the end of January, the beginning of February, it's back to normal again. 
I think people begin their reading plan. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And they get to this part of Exodus and they're like, you know what? I'm not sure this was such a good idea. Or they skim through this. And I think I'm going to stick with the New Testament. It's hard. It's going to be demanding. It's like the steep part of a hike. But the view is going to be worth it if you stick through it. Now, um, now not everybody has a tough time with this part of the Bible. There's a, there's a fascinating verse later in the Hebrew Bible, later in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a piece of poetry. It's an, it's an ode. It's a poem written to or written about the law. David, King David, who wrote all kinds of songs, wrote songs about how much he, how much he loved the law. So, for example, Psalm 119.97, he writes, Oh, how I love your Torah, how I love your law. I meditated on it all, all night and day. And, and I don't know that very many of us could say we do that. I certainly don't. It's an ode to this law. You're like, really, David? Are we reading the same book? Are we reading the same rules? What in the, mean, what in the world do you mean that you love it? That, that, doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem right. All right, let's, let's talk about why we've gotten to this portion of Scripture that is law. Why are we even here? Why is it in the Bible? So the story so far is that the Hebrew people have been slaves in Egypt. They've been oppressed. They've been demeaned. They've been worked hard. They've been crushed into the ground, and they cry to God, and God hears them, and he sends someone to get them out of this situation. Uh, and that's what we've been reading in the, in the book of uh, Exodus so far. You know the story, Moses, the burning bush, the plagues, all of that. So this, this group of people gather up their stuff. They actually get some stuff from the nations around them, the Egyptians around them. And they go on a massive, months-long hike to a specific mountain. This whole nation is traveling to this one mountain where Moses said, you go get those people, you bring them back here. I want to meet them. I want to talk to them. They're going to meet this God that rescued them. Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. That's the slaves. That's the people of Hebrew. And what you are to tell the people of Israel. Same thing. Remember the story of Jacob having his name changed when he was wrestling. You know that. Then out of all the nations, or you, excuse me, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried, them on, carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. I'm a little uh, sentimental as a human. God wired me that way. So when my kids draw a picture, I save almost all of them. I'm a big saver because it would hurt my heart to throw those things away. Some of you parents are like, saw it, pitch it, done. We don't need that around the house. Fine. I know my kids love me. I'm not like that. I like to save every little thing that they do. So I've got these folders. They get big. I mean, parents, you know how this is. The entire forests have lost their lives so that you could hang things on your refrigerator that your kids drew. And I just, I never like to get rid of, rid of the, any of them. I came across some old artwork, uh, this poster, and it was my youngest, who's 11 now, and I don't remember first grade, second grade, but it was like a get-to-know Liam poster. And so it had all these spots where you're supposed to like, tell us your favorite color, tell us your favorite activity, and one of the, you know, you know what is one thing that you wish for? You know, what is something that you wish for? And in that spot, you're supposed to put something like a bicycle or a baseball glove or, you know, I wish to go on a trip to Disney World. That's what you're supposed to put in there. 
Liam, and I still have it, Liam wrote in that spot, I wish for another dad. <laughs> now, you might be tempted to think like, wait, he doesn't like the one he has, he wants another one. No, no, no. He loves the one he has so much, he wishes there were more of him. At least that's how the optimist in me took it. But I still have that. I wish for a, another dad. It's just all those things are so sentimental. And I'm sure you have, whether or not it's a drawing or whether or not it's a, a video. We like to share videos of our kids when they were younger. We have this wonderful one of Avery singing uh, Mighty to Save when she was about four years old. And it's adorable. And it pulls on your heartstrings every time you watch things like that. I want you to notice this phrase in this passage where it says treasured possession. Because that is what God is trying to describe here. I want you, you people, I want to hang your drawings on my fridge. I want to have your picture in my wallet. I want to go back and reminisce over old videos of you singing Mighty to Save. You are my treasured possession. Now, this is at the beginning of what we, what we are going to read are some very difficult laws, but we have to understand the context of the law is that God wanted this people to be, to be part, of, part of him. He loved them. He cared about them. They were his treasured possession. It's a very unique word, almost exclusively only used to describe the people of Israel, his treasured possession. And so it's so important that we understand that. Just like parents want good for their children, God wants good for his children. And so the laws that we read, as difficult as they sometimes can be for us to understand, they reflect a desire for goodness, the goodness of God for them. Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, then all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. We're in. We want to be your treasured possession. We're in. Tell us what the details are. We're ready to go. So this is a covenant. It's not just rules. You're not sitting down at orientation when you got your job. This is a covenant. This is like a marriage license. It's, it's a formality that reflects a relationship. It's forged in relationship. And so God says to these people, great, wonderful. Uh, Moses and I are going to hammer out some details. Now, if you've read the Ten Commandments, God says, it's very important to me that everybody hear what I'm about to say. And he speaks the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, and they're on the mountain, and there's lightning and thunder, and it's all scary. He gets to the end of that, and the people are like, this is freaking us out a little bit. Moses, can you please go talk to God? And then just come back and tell us, and we're in. We'll do whatever. And so most of Exodus is this conversation from God to Moses. Moses is supposed to tell the people these details that they worked out. What does it mean to be God's covenant people? What does it mean to have this relationship with him? But this is fundamental context. God wants our picture on the refrigerator door. God wants our picture in his wallet. Do you, do you understand the, the desire for relationship there? These aren't cold, hard, clinical rules that God's standing back saying, you do this and then I guess maybe I'll like you. No, this is God trying to shape this group of people and make them his own. And some of the rules that we're going to read are going to seem extremely bizarre and extremely foreign to us. But I want you to know that it comes from this place of relationship. Fundamental concept uh, to this. So let's talk some Laws. Let's talk details. The details of the Torah. They actually stay on this mountain uh, for the better part of, the, or near this mountain for the better part of the year. For the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, and the first part of Numbers. And these are the details, right? These are the details. And believers and non-believers sometimes read through these details and use them to dismiss 
what God has said, or to dismiss God altogether, to dismiss Christianity altogether. Oh, you believe in a God that doesn't want this, that doesn't believe in that, that doesn't encourage people to do these things. You believe in a God like that. And so they take what we're about to get into, what we're about to dig into, and they dismiss Christianity altogether. How did David love this law? How did David love it? This summer, I got to travel uh, with my parents to the old country. My dad was born in Scotland, and uh, his, his heritage is Irish, and so we got to see his uh, grandparents' hometown in Ireland and then where he was born and raised in, uh, in Glasgow. Uh, but I had a great time with my parents and two siblings. And while we were in Scotland, I learned of a law in Scotland that we here in the land of the free, home of the brave, do not have, and I loved this law. This law was unbelievable. It was awesome. This law is called technically the Scottish Outdoor Access Code. Does anybody know what I'm getting at here? The Scottish Outdoor Access Code, and what it is, it's a right to roam law, meaning any private land in Scotland, you could just go on it. Like if I see, oh, I want to look at that thing over there, or I want to go over to that tree or see that river, and there's a fence in my way, and it's somebody's private property, I could just hop over that fence and go. You can go anywhere. Now, there's, of course, some limitations. You can't, like, walk into somebody's house and open their refrigerator and make yourself a sandwich. But big public, like, ranches and big public farms, you can't destroy their crops in some cases, you've got to be careful about, you can camp, but you've got to be careful. But you can, if you're like, oh, I want to go over there, you can just go over there. So we decided one day we wanted to see some Highland cows. They're very cool looking cows. They look very Scottish. And I wondered, could I put this law to the test? And could I like climb over a fence and get right up next to a Highland cow? And because of the laws of Scotland, I could. And I got you a little selfie right there to show you. He and I look related, don't we? Same color hair, <laughs> same basic complexion. I know. And it's so cool because there, in fact, in this particular field where this cow was, I don't know. I didn't know anything about Highland cows. I didn't know if they were aggressive or not. So I'm taking this selfie. I'm a little nervous that he's going to like decide to charge me right there, but they're super calm, super great. But in this, in this, in this uh, penned-in, fenced area, the farmers have even built these steps over the fence so people, you know, they don't break anything or hurt themselves because of this right to roam law. I loved that law. That was a great law. We should have that law here in the United States. That would be a great law. And some of you are like, no, nah, I don't like, no, it would be awesome. You could just hike anywhere, go running anywhere, go exploring. I loved that law. Now, there are laws in the United States that you love, right? I mean, certainly some of the amendments to the Constitution, right, or the Bill of Rights, you love the freedom of speech. You, you probably, you love that, right? I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about it. Yeah, I could just mostly say whatever I want to say for, for the most part. Uh, there are limits to that, but you like that law. You like the freedom to be able to practice religion, that our government is not supposed to establish laws regarding the practice of religion. That's a, that's a good law. Did you know 911, like if you call 911 and somebody answers and tries to send help, that's the result of a law. There was a law enacted to make that something that we have access to. That's a great law. In a time of emergency, that's the, I like, that's a good law. So I can begin to understand what David is saying. Like, oh, I love some of these laws, God. Now, I say some of them. David didn't say some of them. 
Because as we read what, what God tells Moses to tell the people, there are going to be some things that sound pretty disturbing to us, some things that we do not like at all. Our objections to these laws tend to be for, for five reasons, five reasons. Some of them are tedious. They're, they're just like, that's a lot. That just feels like a lot. I don't like that. Some of them feel needlessly complicated, complex. Sometimes it's not always clear the why behind what God is asking. It's kind of confusing. Like, what, what is no, no shellfish, no pork? Like, what, why? He doesn't really explain. We can make some guesses, but he doesn't explain. Some of these seem offensive. They don't seem like it's God's character, and we're going to get into one of those in particular. Uh, and, and some of us, this is why we jump right out of this stuff right into the New Testament, because this feels a lot more in keeping with the, the God that we're familiar with. And then it's not always a clear, clear how they do or don't apply to us. Do we, I mean, do we keep those? Do we not? And if we don't, why? And should we keep some of them? But what about the good ones? And do we ignore the ones we don't like or we find weird or disturbing? And people don't always know what to do. Right off the bat, this is probably <laughs> ill-advised, but right off the bat, as you read, you get the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, literally, and then the very next thing you get are these laws regarding servants and slaves. And right off the bat, we're like, I don't like this at all. Let me read to you one of the laws that I think we would find particularly offensive. And if you're caught up with the current reading, you've already read it. Exodus 21.7. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. No amens. I'm really, I'm, I'm shocked, right? No, it's kind of, you read that and you're like, that's horrific. Uh, if a man Sells his daughter? Patrick, why are you even pointing this out? Can't we just... I'll highlight that with a permanent marker, a black permanent marker, so I don't ever have to read it again. That's terrible. What in the world is going on here? Why would God include... Why would a good God include something like this in his law, in his expectations for the nation? And what do we do with it? Now, I mean, if you've ever heard people criticize the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, this is the kind of stuff they're pointing out. See, this is your God. This is what he wants. He condoned this. He was all right with this. You, you're, this is the God you serve. And, and we're sitting here saying, I don't know what to do because it's in the Bible. I'm not sure how to think about this. Now, maybe some of you have wrestled with these ideas, these texts before. But just a second, before you get too offended, and, and I'm not saying you can't. I feel, I think we should be invited to wrestle with Scripture and wrestle with God. Jacob did, right? And God blessed him for it. I think we should be invited to do that. But just slow down a second. Let's hang on. Let's talk just briefly about some, some things to consider as we read some of these laws. And, and we're jumping, this is the deep end, folks. This is like one of the most disturbing ones you'll read, but, but there are certainly others. You and I grew up in a Hallmark movie context. You grew up in a society that taught you, you get to choose who you marry. And that's not been true for most of human history. And that is not true for most of the world today. Did you know that? More than 50% of marriages today are arranged marriages. 
I didn't know that till this week. That's a little bit shocking to me. So when we read this, we bring all our romantic comedy movie suppositions to the story, but that's not the context in which God was speaking. He was speaking in a context where families made decisions about who was going to marry who, and there was a lot more going on. There was politics and, 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 and family connections. There was a lot going on. So the word cell is a, it's a, it's a translation, but it's, it's a, it lacks the nuance of what's happening here. In fact, even today in most contexts where there's a marriage, there's some sort of financial transaction taking place when there's an arranged marriage. There's a financial tra- transaction. So if a man sells his daughter, it's, I don't like that wording at all either, But it doesn't quite capture what's happening here. Here's two families deciding that they're going to go into an agreement together. And as compensation for it, this family gives this family some sort of financial aid or cattle or livestock. Yeah, it's very different than what we experience here. There's always some sort of financial exchange. And it sounds crass to us, but it's part of the deal. So the word sell, technically a correct translation, but it's not really capturing what's happening here. But then it says, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, you're like, I don't like that. What what is this? Well, that word servant is actually different than all the other word servants throughout the text. There's there's a nuance here. Every other time, it's translated something like handmaiden. So it's as if these two families are saying, hey, we think our daughter might be a good fit for marriage into your family. And there is a little bit of a trial basis. We want her to come into our family and be a part of it and work and and, and connect and see what happens. We want that. It's a probationary period. She's going into this family uh, to work. Now, what is this about she doesn't go free as the male servants do? What is that about? Well, Hebrew law required that if someone found themselves in abject poverty... They could go to work for someone else, and they could become their servant. But there was a limitation on that. That could only happen seven years. Seven years they had to go free unless they voluntarily chose to stay. And there's a text right before this that talks about that. They could choose that if they wanted. So it's a little bit different than what's going on. This is not what's happening here. This is a little bit different interaction or transaction than what we've seen. So she's not becoming like a hired hand. She's becoming something different and part of the family. But wait a second, but what about the, if she does not please the master who has selected her? This is all, every word in that sentence sounds awful. What does that mean? Well, if the master says this is not gonna work out, I I don't see marriage happening here. In fact, (laughs) it's a funny translation because do you remember several weeks ago we learned the Hebrew word for good and evil? Good was tov and evil was ra. That's the word in this translation. If this girl is evil, if she is bad, then and this marriage agreement isn't going to work, well, then there's an opportunity to, to move out. He must, the master must let her be redeemed. He can't just pre- pretend he's, she's his property and sell her off into slavery to foreigners. He has broken faith with her. It's a very, very different context than what we're used to. Slaves and servants required to be released every, every six years, families coming together, finding out if this is a good fit. He cannot treat her like property. It's protection for her, but in a very different context than we're used to. 
Now, listen, I'm not saying any of this is simple. Uh, it's very foreign to us. But I want you to consider something. Uh, Netflix streaming services have given us opportunities to rewatch old sitcoms from 10, 15, 20 years ago. Have you ever watched a sitcom, even from a decade ago, and they make some joke or they say some word and you're like, oh, you could not do that today. That 10 years ago, circumstances have changed so drastically that things that were agreed upon by a writer's room and broadcast on national TV are no longer acceptable. So when we're thinking about these words that were written thousands of years ago into a different culture, there is no doubt that we're going to struggle to understand what exactly is going on, which is why the context of knowing that God is a good God is so valuable. Because this stuff is truly confusing. It's truly disturbing. We shouldn't pretend that it's not disturbing to us. It's a conversation with their culture, not ours. And they're not writing for modern 2024 Western sensibilities. There's a couple other things we could consider here, and I'm happy to talk in detail with, with anybody that would like to after this, but, but let me just give you a couple other nuances to help us understand what might be happening here. First of all, he, he'll say in just a few verses, you cannot kidnap anybody and force them into slavery. So human trafficking is, is right out. That, that's not something that's allowed at all. And of course, we talked about the slavery laws that everybody had to be released every seven years. That's, that was a good thing, very different than our circumstances, but ultimately that was a good thing. And I think when we read this stuff, what we've actually got to do is not jump ahead and not skim past it, but we've got to slow way down and really consider the words and the context and what presumptions am I bringing to the text and, and what information do I not have and how, how can I view this in a way that, it, it, that is a reflection of God's goodness. Arthur Pink wrote about um, studying the Bible and he, he, he wrote, no verse of scripture yields its meaning to lazy people. And I think that's such a valuable reminder, not to just disregard, but to dig in and to think and to be really thoughtful and careful. Now, there are other laws, and this is, when I grew up, what, what happened to me was most of this kind of stuff that we just read, we just skimmed right on past it, and people would point out the laws that were actually good. For example, there was a time limit on debt. I mean, we are violating this ancient law, but our credit card companies could not exist in ancient Israel because of their uh, predatory practices. They couldn't exist. There was a time limit on debt. You couldn't just be in debt forever and your children wouldn't inherit your debt and your children's children. There was a limit on it. That's a wonderful law. That's a wonderful idea. All debt had this expiration date. Another law, God said, hey, when you plow your fields, when you, when you uh, take fruit from your orchards, don't be super efficient. Leave some of it. Don't do an awesome job at gleaning the harvest. Leave some of it. Why, God? Because there's people who are struggling and they need something and this is an opportunity for them to come behind you and take some of what you have neglected to, to take. I mean, that's a good law. That's a wonderful law. The companies, the corporations that we have in modern 2020 for America look barbaric compared to ancient Hebrew law. Totally different, totally different. Now, I realize this is still pretty hard stuff. This is why I think we need to slow down and read thoughtfully and read carefully. All right, you get all these laws. 
I mean, there's chapters and chapters and chapters of them. Moses says, okay, God, that's a lot. I'm going to take all that back down to the people. So chapter and chapter and chapter of law, Moses goes down to the people. When Moses went, this is Exodus 24, 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded, sounds good to us. We're in. They didn't have the same questions we do, which may be an indication that they lived in a different context than we do. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said, which is one of the reasons why people assume Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Now, everything the Lord has said we will do. Did they do everything the Lord had said? They did not. In fact, the Lord said right off the bat, I do not want other idols I don't want you worshiping other gods. And he kept reiterating it through the text. And Moses is up talking to God, and God's giving him blueprints for a tabernacle. And Moses, uh, God says, I think something's going on down at the base of the mountain. And you know what was going on down at the base of the mountain? They had immediately done the thing God had said don't do. And they had formed a calf, and they were worshiping it. And Aaron said, hey, here's your God that brought you out of Egypt. Right off the bat. This is just like Genesis all over again. You're like, man, every time God gives them a chance, they just fall flat on their face very intentionally. God, we will serve no other gods. And then immediately they make another god and start worshiping it. You're just like, what in the world? Presley uh, has relayed this anecdote several times, uh, but he went to a Christian college, um, which is a, a, a good thing for a guy who works at a church. He's got a Bible degree. And, and as one would expect, at almost any Christian institute of higher learning, they have uh, different rules and different expectations and different standards than, say, uh, Florida State, one of, the, one of the top party schools in the country. So Harding University has different rules than Florida State. Big shock, right? No, nobody goes to that Bible college thinking, huh, I'm shocked. We're studying the Bible. This is crazy here. My pre professors are talking about the Bible. Harding, one of Harding's expectations, this may be shocking to you, encourage you to go, is that they have chapel every single day. They get together, they worship, and they hear some sort of message every single day. They have curfew. I think it's, I don't know, midnight is their curfew? Something like that. Some of you that have went can tell me. They have chapel, they have curfew, they have different rules and expectations than other school. Presley said he would get so annoyed at other students who would be like, what? We have chapel every day. Our curfew is midnight. Presley was like, nobody was surprising you with these rules. When you applied, you knew what you were getting into. Now that you agreed to live by these expectations, now you're complaining? You knew what you were getting into. People of Israel, God said everything that he expected of you. You knew what you were getting into. When we, when we begin the, the, the first stages of our relationship with God, we know, for the most part, people come to God because they know their life has to change in some way. But yet sometimes when good Christians come along and say, hey, I've got some ideas of maybe how your life could change, then people get offended. But why? Because we know entering into this relationship, entering into this agreement, that there's different expectations that God has for his people, for his children. And it's just kind of silly. It's like someone taking a job and then saying, wait, what? I have to work five days a week? I have to be at work on time? What kind of nonsense is this? No, you agreed to that 
when you entered into that covenant, when you entered into that relationship, they agree to a covenant with God. I will be your God. You will be my people. God says, do not make any graven images. They immediately make graven images. They immediately break the covenant. Now, this is really important because this is something that we're learning as we read the Hebrew Bible, as we read this over and over and over. Every time God said, hey, uh, I'm, going to, <laughs> I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to bless you. Hey, would you not do X, Y, Z? And then they immediately do X, Y, Z. And then what does God do? God says, well, forget you. I don't want to have anything to do with you ever again. <clears throat> no, never. Over and over and over again, you get the impression that God's like, okay, uh, <laughs> let's start over here. Can we do that? And God does that for hundreds and hundreds of years, showing his graciousness. We don't think of the Old Testament as this gracious text, but God does, showing his graciousness to a thousand generations. All right, some of you are like, all right, but what are we supposed to do with any of this? We live under the new covenant, Patrick. We read the New Testament. Are we supposed to keep these laws? Are we supposed to read the Old Testament and then we're supposed to do all those things? Impossible. There's laws that literally you can't keep. You have to find a Levite priest. You have to offer sacrifices. You can't do that. No, that's not what we're supposed to do with them. Are we supposed to learn something about God through these laws? Well, certainly. We could learn about God's holiness. We could learn about God's expectations. Sure, but some of them are odd. Does God not like shellfish? Does he not like pork? What's, what's that all about? A lot of Christians treat these laws like a buffet. Leviticus 19 is a very famous dish on the buffet where it says, don't mark your body for the dead. Don't engage in pagan funeral rituals. And a lot of Christians have said, oh, I like that. I'm going to use it to tell my children not to get tattoos. It doesn't say that. But that's how they use it. They pick and choose certain things out of there that they like. Because it's kind of funny. The, very, the verse right before this verse that says, don't mark your body for the dead, says, don't cut your sideburns or the edges of your beard. And so fresh-faced preachers will preach about how it's a sin to get tattoos. And you're like, but you're breaking the one right before it. No, that's not how we engage with this text. So what do we do? Shouldn't, let's just ignore it. Let's just avoid it altogether. Let's take a step back and look at the big picture as we wrap up this morning. God says, I want to be your God. And the people say, deal. We are in. What are the terms of the agreement? We'll do it. And then they immediately do not do it. And God immediately comes to them again and comes to them again. And they continue to break the terms of the covenant over and over again for thousands of years. And yet God doesn't abandon them. You know what God eventually does? God comes to earth in the form of a human. And God says, you guys weren't able to keep the laws and the commands and the expectations. You know what? I'm going to keep both ends of the deal for us. I'm going to keep both ends of the bargain so that you can experience the blessings that I long to pour out on my children. I'm going to do both. And so Jesus lived this perfect life. That's why the perfection, because he was keeping all these things that we couldn't keep. That's the big picture. Matthew 5, 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the Torah until everything is accomplished. 
God says, I'm going to keep my end of the deal, and I'm going to keep your end of the deal, and you get to experience the blessings. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. This is so hard to think through and understand and illustrate. Um, but I, I saw a little, little article this week that I thought maybe just, you know, touched at the idea here. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a guy who needed a new washer and dryer set. They had just had a child, and they needed uh, to replace theirs. And he finds one on Craigslist. And, you know, Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, it's just always, you never know what you're going to get. You just never know, right? But he finds this deal, 500 bucks, and he goes to the guy, and he says, hey, you just had a kid. Any chance you'd take 400 bucks? And the guy says, sure, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll take 400 bucks. And so he took the washer and dryer, went home, hooked them up. They worked great. So he messaged him back and said, hey, thank you so much. These work great. It's really going to help my family. He got a message back from the seller, said, hey, I left a little gift in the dryer for you and your family. And he opens up the dryer, and inside the dryer is $400. So he had just gifted these things to this, this young family, knowing that they had needed them. But he didn't just say, you know what? Don't pay me. He let him pay him. And then he gave that back to them. And I think there's something there about us and our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God and God keeping both ends of the covenant. And it's so hard for us to understand. And sure, yeah, there's so much about the old covenant that we struggle with. But I think you multiply that idea times a billion and you begin to have what God is trying to do in our hearts and in our lives and how he's trying to shape us and form us and change us. But it's grace upon grace upon grace. We're learning through these difficult verses that God is a good God, and no matter how often we fail, he will never let go. He will never give up. We're going to sing a song in closing called Goodness of God, where it talks about God's goodness chasing after us. And I think that's, that's, it feels like a juxtaposition to talk about the Hebrew law and God's goodness, but I think we have to see it that way. Otherwise, we're going to read through this text and we're going to be like, what? Why? I'm not sure. So I've even been praying for the church family this week. I've been praying like, hey, please, God, don't let them get the wrong idea because these are hard. These are different. But I just pray that we could find the, the thread of God's goodness throughout these things. Would you stand as we sing?